three, two, one. Hit it. What? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a reason. Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with some of these people. Put down um, on your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, uh, would you rather? All right, trust me. Take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits. This week, I'm joined by Professor of History and Professor of Education, Dr. Jonathan Zimmerman. Dr. Zimmerman and I explore issues including the limitations on speech in totalitarian regimes around the world, how to balance the necessity for free speech with the importance of limiting the spread of misinformation online, whether the government has a duty to regulate social media platforms, and finally, why the fake news problem on the internet is not so much a free speech problem as it is an educational problem. All that and so much more on another episode of Nervous Habits. What's going on, fam? We are now in the dog days of winter. I don't know if that's if that's actually um, uh, linguistically correct, <laughs> dog days of winter. But we, but it's as as I release this, it's it's um, mid November, and it's gonna be coming out early December. But it's 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 cold. It's getting cold here in in Washington D.C. Um, and as you guys know. I'm going to be moving back to New York once I graduate from law school in the spring. So this is actually my last winter in D.C. Um, not to say New York winters. I mean, that's probably going to be even chillier. But, um, yeah, I've had to break out the winter attire from my closet. It's actually kind of uh, funny and, and also a little sad. So I had this winter coat. This, is, this might amuse some of you guys. So I had this winter, this pea coat that I've had since um, – I want to say since my senior year of college, so since 2013, I've had it for eight years. Every winter I wear it. Um, it's not. It's got to be like a Kenneth Cole reaction or something like that. It's a nice one, giving them a free plug on the podcast. And I think last week I lost it either in a lift or when I was shopping or I left it at my friend's place. I, I, I don't know where it is. And I don't know about you guys. I'm not someone that really loses things. I'm, I'm pretty OCD about my possessions, so it, it's rare that I actually like – I leave a jacket somewhere. So I go on Lyft. I go on the app because um, I, I suspect that it might be in a vehicle. And there's a feature that allows you to contact a driver about a lost item. So I, I reached out to a driver and I said, hey, I lost my peacoat. I was wondering if uh, if you know you found it in your vehicle. Like, Let me know. I like, really appreciate it. And I get a, an alert from Lyft. It says driver indicates that the item is found. So I was all excited. Like, okay, he has my Pico, whatever. So we go back and forth for a while. It actually takes a couple days. It's hard to pin him down. He's, he's a busy guy and, you know, uh, he doesn't always drive into D.C. But eventually, um, last night, he tells me, listen, like, I have your jacket. I'm going to swing by your apartment. And I said, great. Um, what's your Venmo? I'll, I'll send you some cash, right? Uh, a nice, nice symbiotic, a, a nice mutually beneficial transaction. So I go down to the lobby of my building to retrieve my peacoat that I've been sorely missing. Um, and I see him. He has like an iPhone 13 in his hand, like a brand new iPhone and a post-it. And the post-it says Ricky Rosen jacket. And I'm confused. So I like, I walk up to him and he's walking back to his car at this point. And I ask him, I'm like, Hey, like, you know, do, do you have my jacket? And he's like, yeah, I, I, have, I, have, I have your stuff. It's right here. And he hands me the iPhone 13 Ricky Rosen jacket. I, I, and I'm just a little confused. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I didn't lose an iPhone. I lost my jacket. And he's like, yeah, 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 jacket. You know, you lost your iPhone. And it turns out, and I'm not even, I'm not even, not even being ironic here, he thought that my name was Jacket and that I reached out to him because I lost my iPhone. So he was returning my iPhone to Ricky Rosen jacket. 
Um, so, and then I eventually said, you know, I, I eventually was like, no, I didn't know. Like, I didn't lose an iPhone. Do you have my jacket? He didn't have the jacket. That's that's the story wraps up. He he didn't have the jacket. I gave him the iPhone. You know, iPhone. Someone else lost their phone. Obviously, um, not going to take that. And so he drove out his way to um to retrieve uh to give me back this thing because he thought my name was Jacket. So this it's almost like a who's on first scenario. I don't know if this the, there might have been like a language barrier or something. But um I posted on Twitter. If you guys uh follow if you want to follow me on Twitter, I don't usually plug my Twitter, but um. At Ricky at Ricky R thirteen. Sometimes I, I at Ricky R five thirteen. I don't even know my I don't even know my Twitter handle. Sometimes I like I uh, I include these like random almost Kirby enthusiasm esque scenarios. Like I, I posted because I had crowdsourced. I'd asked people, hey, how much money should I tip my uh, Lyft driver as a, as a tip for his trouble returning my jacket? And people had said, you know, twenty dollars, thirty dollars, whatever. And then I wrote, update, he dropped off an iPhone he found in his vehicle last week. I asked where my jacket was. He said he didn't find a jacket. I asked him why he had my jacket. Well, he said he had my jacket. He told me he thought my last name was Jacket. So uh, I guess people get a kick out of it. And I sort of play into it. I changed my name on Twitter to uh, Rocky Reigns Jacket. So Rocky Reigns is an anagram of my name. Anagrams are actually pretty fun. So if you go to uh, Anagram Generator and you put in your name – um, find all available words. Like I typed in Ricky Rosen, and it says Rocky Reigns is one, Icky Snorer is one, Rocky Rince, Rocky Siren, Crony Skyer, um, Snor- Icky Snorer, I said, Sorcery Inc., Sorcery Kin, Corker's Yin, Wreck uh, Iron Sky. Yeah, so check it out. Uh, just if you Google search, um, uh, Anagram generator. It's the second one, the wordsmith.org. So, like, let's say your name was, um, uh, I'll do, let's say Penny Rosen. That's my dog. Anagrams. We got Penny Senor, Preen Sunny, Penny, Penny Resno, uh, or my buddy Adam Rabinowa. So, this is probably going to be a good one. Anagrams. No, nothing for him. Oh, no. Actually, wait. He is a lot. Uh, bad man ratio whiz. That's pretty good. I'm gonna start saying that to him. Bad man ratio whiz. Armband iota whiz. Zambia drain toe. Zambia drain two. So it's pretty fun. You can literally spend hours doing this. So sorry, my ADHD is taking us on a ride. My name on Twitter is Rocky Reigns because that's an anagram of Ricky Rosen, and I added jacket as an as an ode to this weird experience. Um, so yeah. So anyway, all that's to say. <laughs> All that's to say that it's been um, getting cold, cold weather. You guys can probably relate. So um, out, out comes the – out came the jacket. I got to buy a new jacket. But in the future, I'll be known as Ricky Rosen Jacket. So this is Nervous Habits with Ricky Rosen Jacket. Um, anyway, I've been super busy with school. Uh, semester's winding down. Um, I took the MPRA. I told you guys the ethics exam. Uh, I'm prepping for finals. I'm really busy with school. I've also – I think I've been sleeping too much. I don't know if any of you guys can relate to this, but it's the sensation of like just waking up being groggy and lethargic and, and just going back to bed. Like I don't have a problem waking up. I've always been sort of um, not really a light sleeper, but I wake up when the alarm comes off. My issue is I, I end up falling back asleep. Um, so Penny wakes me up at 8 a.m. I take her out. She goes potty, and then I come back, and um, and I just go back to sleep. And then she wakes me up at 9, and sometimes I go back to sleep after that too. Um so – and it's hard because I have classes at 10 a.m. and I know some of you guys listening might be thinking, oh, 10 a.m. isn't – you know, that's not 
10 a.m. is like 10 a.m. is late. Like, come on. Um, but yeah, like sometimes I just can't wake up for the 10 a.m. class, so I just watch the class online. Um, so all this to say, yeah, things are pretty busy, but I'm pumped for this week's episode of the podcast because I haven't really done an episode on politics or law in quite a long time. I think the last one that I did was with um, Professor William Howell after the uh, after the election, after the Biden inauguration. We talked about uh, assessing the historical rankings of the president. That was, I think, that was in March. That was like eight months ago. So I'm excited to to delve back into politics and law because as much as you know, a lot of this podcast is devoted to psychology and neuroscience and technology. Those are all my, my like passions and, and um, you know, major interests of mine. I also, you know, I also love, I also love to talk, talk politics and I wouldn't be in law school if I didn't have interest, an interest in, in the law as well. So I'm excited about this week's episode, which is really about, uh, which is really about free speech and what it means to exercise that right online and on social media platforms um, and what the various tensions are between the government and Twitter the necessity for regulation and Facebook and how this, you know, impacts elections like in like in 2016 and 2020. And I'm going to be discussing all that with this week's guest, Dr. Jonathan Zimmerman. So a little bit about Dr. Zimmerman. So John Zimmerman is the professor of history of education and the Berkowitz professor in education at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a former Peace Corps volunteer and high school teacher and holds a BA from Columbia University and an MA and PhD in history from the John Hopkins University. He's the author of nine books, including Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn, and The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America. Next year, University of Chicago Press will publish a revised 20th anniversary edition of Dr. Zimmerman's 2002 book, Who's America? Culture Wars in the Public Schools. Uh, John Zimmerman is also a frequent op-ed contributor in the Washington Post, the New York Review of Books, and other popular magazines and newspapers. He has appeared on The Joe Rogan Show and dozens of other podcasts, including Now Nervous Habits, uh, as well as TV shows and radio interviews. And John Zimmerman previously taught for 20 years at New York University, where he received its Distinguished Teaching Award back in 2008. So obviously John has come, highly recommended, and you'll know um, immediately from our conversation, sort of just just uh, how much of a, a brilliant scholarly and academic mind he is. And so without further ado, my conversation with Dr. John Zimmerman. Dr. John Zimmerman, welcome to Nervous Habits. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making time to, to, to jump on. You know, I wanted to talk to you about the topic for a moment, John. Why did you choose to write a book on free speech and why at this moment in particular? Well, the reason I chose to write the book on free speech in some ways is quite personal. I, I teach young people, that is uh, undergrads and graduate students generally between the ages of uh, 18 and 30. And more importantly to me, I also have two young adult daughters, age 25 and 28. And what I've noticed in my exchanges with all these brilliant young people is that they had a very different view of free speech than my own they saw and see free speech as a conservative thing, mm -hmm. something that uh, you hear about on Fox News and that Republicans support, um, uh, because what they, uh, um, uh, the argument goes, because they support it because it's a way for powerful people, especially white men, to have their way. And this is a very, very common refrain that you hear, especially on university campuses. And the reason I wrote the book is to be as direct as possible was an attempt to refute it, uh, an attempt to look backwards, which is what historians do, and to show not the conservative dimensions of free speech, but the liberal and the radical ones. And to try to persuade my daughters and everybody else in that generation 
that in fact, every movement for social justice in the history of this country has been powered by free speech and could not have existed without free speech. It, it's interesting to hear you sort of try to separate the partisan dimension from um, free speech, because I, I think there is something to, uh, to that, John, something to, to the notion that generally speaking, conservatives or, you know, free speech as a concept is identified with a conservative movement more so than than the liberal movement. Um, but I wonder to what extent the media has has reinforced this perception or to what extent I mean, you know, as you're a professor, what extent at the education system has reinforced it or is this sort of just the natural? evolution of, of the way that times have changed in the last you know 100 years or so well you know I'm uh, I'm a historian so of course I don't think anything is quote natural uh, I think it's all constructed it's all historicized and you know um, I think that um, a couple things happened to change the the, the political valence and ledger in the ways Ricky that you're describing um, uh, and most of them are very salutary things. So um, our college campuses became way more diverse in every way than they had been before, which by the way, is something that I endorse and I celebrate. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I think that we develop much more awareness around uh, mental health, um, uh, which is also something that I endorse and celebrate. However, I think that when you put these two things together, they had an unintended consequence. And I think that one of the things that happened, especially on our college campuses, was a kind of psychologizing of politics, whereby if I said something you disagreed with, um, it wasn't just that you disagreed with me. You claimed that I harmed you in some fundamental way, psychologically. You claimed that I microaggressed you. You claimed that I triggered you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all these terms do come out of psychology. And I think that they've been poisonous for free speech uh, because... Ricky, if you say that I was microaggressed by something that I've said in this conversation, uh, I have essentially one thing to say to you in response, I'm sorry. And, and I would be, I really would be. I mean, I'm not on this earth to harm you or anybody else. But I think that this culture of psychology, psychologizing as I call it, mm-hmm. I think led people to believe that in fact, good-minded and good-hearted people um, they watch their speech very carefully and they also police the speech of others in the name of this thing called social justice, especially around race mm-hmm. and bad minded and bad hearted people. Well, they just go ahead and hurt. They just cause harm um, uh, uh, because they don't believe in our project and they don't believe in social justice. And again, I think all of these things are deeply flawed and deeply fallacious, but I also think they're quite powerful. You know, it, 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 it's an interesting, um, an interesting idea, the psychologizing of politics. A lot's been written. I'm sure you're familiar with uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, the Jonathan Haidt book. And actually, I had a guest on, um, a neuroscientist, a couple of weeks ago who talked about how uh, part of the reason why young people are so intolerant to pain um, as compared to uh, prior generations, why young people are so quick to take a pill or or something else as a substitution for self-care has to do with this um, coddling or this way that we're protecting um, ourselves or protecting each other from, um, excuse me, from feelings or from thoughts that might be offensive. And I do think, as you mentioned, uh, if someone you know, uh, finds an opinion or a fact or an idea uh, harmful, that is a conversation ender, right? Like you can't, as you said, you can't 
uh, do anything with that except apologize. So I, I do think there's merit to what you're saying here, John. Yeah, I guess I, I had a couple of things. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I, I know John Hyde and Greg Lukianoff well, and I'm a big fan of their book. Um, but I don't like the metaphor of coddling mm. because I think that, frankly, a lot of what we're discussing now, Ricky, is really quite isolated to the elite campuses. Mm -hmm. So if you look at higher ed writ large, you know, there are 4,700 places to get a BA. Um, half of them are community colleges uh, where almost nobody's residential. Um, a quarter of American undergrads are 25 or over. A quarter have a kid. These people are not coddled. Like they're working two or three jobs just to make ends meet. Right. Um, I do think, however, on our elite campuses, these trends are, you know, very powerful. But I think it's also important to make that distinction. And I think you can see it in all kinds of different ways. Just think about student protests, right? Student protests as it exists on our campuses now, you, it's overwhelmingly isolated, to use a loaded term, within the elites. And that's very different from past generations. I mean, think about the Vietnam era. Where were the kind of, uh, you know, the sort of paradigmatic or now iconic places of protest and also tragedy? Well, Kent State, where students were gunned down, and also Jackson State, where students right. were also gunned down. You know, the first, a kind of mid-tier, big public school that almost nobody outside of that area had heard of. The other, an HBCU, which probably most people outside of that zone hadn't heard of either. Um, and so you had protest around, you know, civil rights in Vietnam that was quite, you know, uh, I wouldn't say evenly, but I would say widely distributed across different sorts of schools. You don't see that now because I think the kinds of trends we're discussing are overwhelmingly focused on the elite schools. Yeah, I would I would agree with you there, John. I, I think I think it is the trend is really um the, you know, the, the elite of the elite where you're seeing the manifestation of these kinds of issues. I, I do want to sort of refocus the conversation back around free speech. I think it will be illuminating for people to understand the state of free speech in America to sort of contrast that with free speech in countries around the world. And in the book, you speak about students from the People's Republic of China talking to you about how dangerous it is to criticize the government in China. And of course, the limitations on free speech and di dictatorships like North Korea and Cuba and Venezuela. Can you talk a little bit uh, about what speech is like in those regimes compared to the rest Western world? Well, I'm really glad that you mentioned this because I also think in this entire discussion, we've got to be really, really careful to avoid hyperbole. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we do have a free speech problem on American campuses. Um, uh, I believe that very strongly. And I've devoted a big part of my recent career to trying to both explain that and remedy it. But it's not North Korea, it's not China, it's not Venezuela, because in those countries, what you have is you have the state exerting really profound and dangerous controls on free speech. That's not the case here. So just look at me, Ricky. I mean, you know, I write a column, a newspaper column every week. Most of those columns are in some way critical of somebody in state power, mm -hmm. and nobody has ever from the state that is threatened me. Nobody's come in the night for my family. Um, so we have a free speech problem in this country, but it's a very different order than the places you're talking about. I would argue on our campuses, at least, it's mostly created by you and me, that is by the culture. Mm -hmm. It's not like they're like bad guys with sunglasses and baseball bats walking around our campuses and, you know, like, you know, canceling people. Right. No, it's much more subtle than that. I think it's in the culture and it's not 
And we should all be grateful for this part of the political apparatus. So just to, to kind of unpack that a little bit more, John. Uh, so some of some of my listeners, um, I think, would would acknowledge, right, that, that, that we live in a little bit of a bubble in America, um, thinking that the way that it is here is the way that it is in, in the rest of the world. So if, if you know, someone was a citizen of, let's say, China, um, and they wanted to express a certain idea about, a, you know, maybe denigrate a, a public uh, official or um, criticize uh, a policy, they were to somehow post this in, in, in a public forum, express it in a public forum. What's, what, what sort of consequences would there be uh, in, in, in that situation? What happens, of course, is that, you know, if you criticize the government, you know, you can be tried under any number of laws. Just look at what's happened in Hong Kong recently. Hong Kong is not part of the People's Republic of China, but it's increasingly dominated by the People's Republic of China. And some of the leading journalists in that country are in jail. Mm-hmm. Um, they're in jail for violating, you know, so, so-called social order laws or even anti-terrorism laws, even though they're not terrorists at all. And Ricky, I mean, one thing people should understand that hasn't gotten nearly enough ink is this, this um, problem and, you know, this um, uh, censorship and control, it extends to Chinese nationals no matter where they are. So mm. I have heard Chinese students in the United States say that they do not feel free to discuss certain topics openly, including in my classroom, because they don't know who's watching or who's listening. Um, there was a student recently, a Chinese national at the University of Minnesota, who, while he was in the Twin Cities, posted some of these memes that make fun of Xi Jinping by comparing them to Winnie the Pooh. Memes, by the way, that are illegal illegal in the People's Republic of China. And when he got home, he was arrested. So look, that's never going to happen to you or me. And every day we should wake up and feel grateful for that. Um, my, my belief about the United States is every American is patriotic. We're just patriotic about different things. And what I am patriotic about is precisely that, that um, you know I can write a newspaper column or I can go on the radio or I can do a podcast like I'm doing now. Mm. And although, you know, People may disagree with me, um, and sometimes citizens may write awful and threatening things to me because that does happen. Mm-hmm. I am never threatened by my government. You know, and, th- and that was my takeaway also from from um, this you know this aspect of of the book, and that you know millions of Americans every day go on Twitter. I don't, I don't know if you're a big Twitter user. But, I am not. I don't do social media. Okay, that's probably probably a, a wise decision. But um, th- Twitter is my vice, as as listeners of the pod know. And um, you know, you see people disseminating foul and often personal attacks um, on not only just government leaders or um, public public figures, celebrities, athletes, s- complete strangers. You know, just committing all all sorts of um, you know expressing all sorts of uh, foul and and personal um, attacks on people with no consequence. And I do think to your point it is it is you know important to be mindful of the fact that in america and and in um in canada and, and in you know the, these western countries we we have that that privilege and we have that right to um essentially express you know i mean obviously there, there are several limitations but express anything that we want um without having to to worry as you said about the fbi or the cia or, or the state um, waking us up in the middle of the night to cart us off to jail. So I, I, I do think that's that's one of my takeaways when we draw the contrast between the, the situation with speech in America and with some of these regimes that we're speaking about. Yes, and, and um, I, I think that in the discussion we're having, this distinction is hugely important because if you miss it, then you know, you end up making ridiculously hyperbolic statements. And so, you know, sometimes you'll hear our college campuses described as gulags, 
mm-hmm. right? Or as, you know, struggle sessions in the Cultural Revolution. Anyone who thinks the American college campus today is a gulag hasn't read enough about gulags, okay? <laughs> like, go ahead and read Solzhenitsyn and then come back to me and tell me that what's happening on my campus is a gulag. You can't. It's embarrassing. And, and I'll add, it also doesn't help the free speech cause because then you get this crying wolf thing where people say, oh, the people complaining about free speech, they've totally discredited themselves by calling it a gulag. That doesn't help the cause of free speech. It hurts it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be, you have to be vigilant about the language that you're using to, to characterize the problem. And, and as you mentioned earlier, avoid hyperbole. I, I, I do want to ask you, you know, when we're talking about contemporary speech in America and how it's shifted um, in, in recent times, We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the impact that the Trump presidency had uh, in how we conceptualized free speech. So when you think about free speech now in 2021 versus maybe 2016 before Trump was was elected, um, how how has it changed how we think about it? Well, you know, I think there I think there are a few things. I mean, I think that Trump himself and his minions, I think they solidified this sort of partisan connection that we were discussing earlier, you know. Trump and especially his son, Trump Jr., they frame themselves as great protectors and great advocates of free speech, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, endlessly talking about, you know, cancel culture on places like Fox News. Yet at the same time, let's remember that it's it's Fox News and its acolytes that have also been the major engines behind these new state laws, barring things like the 1619 Project and critical race theory. Um, Ricky, what could be a greater example, a worse example of, quote, cancel culture than that? So I think what you saw is this strange dynamic where the GOP tried to weaponize free speech as a concept and, you know, uh, as a Jeremiah, as a complaint, but at the same time engaged in their own just ridiculous, ridiculous assaults on free speech. Think of Trump himself calling the New York Times an enemy of the people. Mm. Now, again, that's quite different from these anti-CRT laws because, of course, well, it's not a law, but um, uh, it's obviously a threat. And it's a threat to the fourth estate, which is absolutely at the heart of the First Amendment and free speech in general. Um, So it's a little rich, to use a loaded adjective, for the likes of Donald Trump to be complaining about cancel culture and the abrogation of free speech and then engaging in all these threats against it. I mean, we we could probably establish uh, an exhaustive timeline on all of the manifestations, on all the instances where Trump um, has, you know, try to undermine free expression and freedom of the press. And um, I mean, and we've spoken about this a lot on the pod more so when, when um, Trump was, was still president, but uh, it's, it's, you know, useful to note now, just uh, you mentioned his weaponization of the language, uh, the repetition of free speech, uh, you know, the, the press is the enemy of the people. Um, I think you mentioned the New York times, the enemy of the people, like it's kind of his, is his, one of his mottos. One of the things that he, he would uh, repeat over and over again is just the fake news media is, is the enemy of the people. Um, and I, I do think that, as you mentioned, our, our uh, association of partisanship with free speech was, uh, was very much strengthened by the Trump administration, by Trump and, and by uh, his, his people. Yeah. And even now, like, like you know, uh, under the Biden administration, I think that dangerous precedent has, has been set. Um, and I do think it's going to be difficult to, to walk that back. 
It is. And, and here's the problem, you know, from the partisan perspective. And now I speak as a liberal Democrat, which is what I am. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, I think that a lot of people on the left have become skeptical of free speech precisely because of the often invidious ways that Trump has invoked the concept. But that's not a reason to turn your back on it. So I've had students say to me things like, well, free speech, that's just something that people on Fox News complain about. And, and, and look, you know, if you take such a blasé attitude towards it, you won't have a good leg to stand on when people start to restrict it. So for, you know, for, for um, months and months and years and years, I've been warning my fellow lefties that if you start to do things like create bias response teams and different sorts of speech restrictions on your campus, don't be surprised if you wake up one day and you find the other team has weaponized such restrictions against you. And you know what, Ricky? Mm. That came to pass. That's what these anti-CRT and anti-1619 laws are. That day is here. Like, so you keep talking about the need to restrict our speech because certain people are harmed. Mm. Well, what makes you think that that's not going to get turned against you? And lo and behold, it has been. It's, it's like that old, uh, that old quote, standard for, for thee, but not for me, right? And then yes. um, eventually, eventually, as you said, it, it comes back to, to haunt you. I actually have, have a theory. I mean, when we're talking about fake news and cancel culture, I don't, I don't believe these are new things per se. I, I know that everyone likes to um, frame Trump as, as the founder of, of the phenomenon of, of fake news. I, just, I actually think with social media platforms, it's enabled more people to have access to these, whereas when we were children, it was really only a few people who could participate in the dissemination of information. But these things have been around for a long time. Do you, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And, and indeed, that's one reason I wrote the book. I mean, leaving aside social media, which is obviously a much more recent phenomenon, to go back to state censorship, look, Ricky, it's true that the state has never censored me. And um, I feel incredibly grateful for that. But another reason that I wrote the book was to remind people how recent that liberty is. And for most of American history, the state, the state participated in all kinds of egregious forms of censorship, going right back to the Alien and Sedition Acts in the first decade of the history of the country. So, you know, France, France was threatening the United States in all kinds of ways, and certain people on the Federalist Party were saber-rattling for a war in France. So they just passed a law saying you can't criticize America. Why? Because there's a war on, um, or we think there's going to be a war on, and you don't get to play for the other team. Right. And we saw, we saw that right up until the Vietnam War itself. You know, in the Civil War, the Union and, and, and Abraham Lincoln, they jailed all kinds of people and closed newspapers because they suspected they were playing for the other team. During the First World War, all kinds of pacifists and other dissenters were jailed, um, mm -hmm. you know, for the Second World War. It's only in Vietnam and it's only in my own lifetime that actually the courts um, uh, declared and enforced the idea that you have the right to dissent during wartime. Prior to that time, the state was on your butt and you weren't allowed to do it. And I think that history is really important. So we all remember just how recent this is and how tenuous it is and therefore how vigilant we have to be in protecting and defending it. And I'm glad you mentioned that because that's really another tension here is, is the degree to which the state has the ability to limit a citizen's civil liberties in wartime. I mean, I think it was um, 
Shank, right? Shank VUS that said the freedom of speech is limited in wartime and uh, the clear and present dangerous standard. So I think that as much as we need to be vigilant in, you know, not taking free speech for granted in America, we also have to be, uh, you know, um, mindful of the fact that in in uh, in peacetime like we're in right now, we, we have these liberties. But you know, who's to say that there there won't be additional restrictions down the line? Um, I want I want to ask you about uh, sort of the dark side of free of free speech, which is the the spread of misinformation. I alluded to um, yeah. fake news a moment ago. I talk a lot on the podcast about the dark side of social media and particularly how it gives everyone a platform, right? Like as long as you have a Twitter account, you can tweet out conspiracy theories about the Clintons running a a child pedophile ring outside of Comet Ping Pong in DC or how COVID-19 was hatched in a laboratory by George Soros. So let me ask you, how do you balance the necessity for protection of our First Amendment rights with the spread of misinformation, particularly with respect to COVID-19 this past year? Well, look, these are serious questions. Obviously, I don't have all the answers to them, but I do think that in general, the best way to fight bad speech is with better speech. And I think all of us should get very nervous when we start to hear proposals about either the state or Mark Zuckerberg deciding what is too harmful and too dangerous for us to hear or to see. So let's take a very concrete example, Ricky, since you mentioned COVID. Mm -hmm. Um, You may recall that right around the time that it began, at least in the United States, um, there were people starting with the president of the United States who were calling it the China virus, calling it the Wuhan flu. And many of these statements were, I think, racist in their inflection. Um, And what Facebook decided to do was to deem them hate speech um, and also start to take down, leaving aside the loaded language about the Wuhan flu, statements saying that the virus was hatched in a lab in Wuhan. Why? Because that was very hateful. That was very harmful. And it was so hateful and so harmful that nobody should see or hear it. Well, you know what? The current president of the United States has convened a commission to analyze whether this virus was hatched in the Wuhan lab. Now, let me be transparent here. I, having read some about this, I'm hardly an expert, I still think it's quite far-fetched to imagine it was hatched in a lab in Wuhan. Um, It seems to me, in my limited reading, that the bulk of the evidence is against that. Um, And this is precisely the idea that was deemed so hateful that you can't even post it on the internet. I don't want Zuckerberg or anybody else making that call. Yeah, I, I think that in addition to the way that the Trump presidency has changed the landscape of, of speech, I, I do think the pandemic is, is another important um, sort of threshold event because the pandemic was, you know, in the course of human history, this, this is an event where everyone needs access to information in order to, to understand, for example, like, do we get vaccinated? Do we not get vaccinated? Do we wear a mask? Do we not wear a mask? How, you know, how essential is social distancing? And because you don't necessarily have the, these gatekeepers um, to information on uh, search engines and on, on media platforms, um, people are getting all sorts of information. So I, I, I do think that um, it does bear mentioning that in addition to, to the way that, that the Trump administration changed free speech, I think COVID-19 has also had, had a tremendous impact on, on how people think about free speech and how people think about free press and free information and how important it is um, either to censor that or to have access to it. 
Yes, no, absolutely. And look, these I don't mean to dismiss these problems mm -hmm. um, or to take them lightly in any way. They are hugely serious. Look, Ricky, my wife is an infectious disease physician, mm -hmm. and she spent every waking hour since March 2020 trying to protect us from this disease, which is a preventable disease. Um, uh, uh, it, it's so hard to get your arms around this, but the vast majority of the nearly three quarters of a million of our country women and men who died of it did not have to die of it. Right. Um, we just did not step into it as a nation. And one of the reasons we didn't step into it, not the only reason, but one of the reasons, a big reason, is the massive amount of misinformation that circulated through the public sphere about what it was, about what caused it, and what will prevent it. And it continues, right? Those are all real. I don't think any reasonable person could deny what I just said. The only interesting question is what to do about it. And it goes back to the question of how do we balance the necessity for um, free speech with preventing the spread of misinformation? Do you believe, you know, this is a challenging question, but do, do you believe platforms like Facebook and Twitter have an obligation to censor information that might be false, that might lead to you know, people making decisions that, that could cause them harm? And if so, who decides whether it's true or false? Well, you know, I, I, I understand the impulse to do that, especially given everything that's transpired since March 2020. Um, but I also think that in a strange way, we've relied too much on figures like Zuckerberg and um, the Twitter guy, why am I forgetting his name? Jack, uh, Jack, Jack Dorsey. Dorsey yep. You know, there, there, there is within this wish to kind of require these companies to do this policing. I think there's also this sort of childlike fantasy that the Zuckerbergs and the Dorseys are going to save us here. Um, you know, uh, in a way, I think the demand on them to exert the censorship function, puts them on a pedestal that they probably don't deserve. Um, uh, you know, I think the problem isn't Zuckerberg and Dorsey. The problem is you and me. Um, the problem isn't Facebook or Twitter. The problem are the users of Facebook and Twitter. Um, uh, their gullibility, their cynicism, um, their willingness to believe outlandish, false, and yes, sometimes hateful claims about COVID and everything else. Um, it strikes me as fantastical and again, somewhat childlike to imagine that this Zuckerberg dude, all 30 whatever years that he's got under his belt, is going to somehow say or do the things that will save us from this. This is a cultural and educational problem. And I would underscore the educational part. One way of interpreting this entire tragedy is as an educational tragedy. Look, if to use one of your early examples, Ricky, hundreds of thousands or even millions of people believe that Chuck Schumer is operating a pedophile ring in Washington involves the, the sexual abuse of children followed by their murder, followed by the drinking of their blood, that's an educational problem in the sense that the people that believe that didn't receive the kind of education that allows them to separate cant and falsehood from reality. And 
I'm not quote blaming our schools and universities for this, but our schools and universities were constituted, are constituted to help us do that kind of intellectual activity. And I don't see how anybody can look at this moment and say that they've done that successfully. They have not. I don't think I've ever uh, heard someone characterize the issue as um, sort of shifting the responsibility from the platforms and from the government onto the people. And I think, and, and I'm not disagreeing with that, but I think the the issue with that is is then it becomes difficult to kind of conceptualize a solution, right? If we if we pass, you know, if if we essentially say that these um, social media companies need more regulation. We'll talk about Section 230 in a few minutes. But um, or if we say the government needs to do more to keep these these you know messages um, from from getting out, labeling you know misinformation, things like that, it it becomes almost like like clear what needs to be done. But when we say educationally, the problem is that people are too gullible. People are too quick to leave these things. I don't see in in a in a free country where where people can can express whatever they want and can believe whatever they want. I don't see a solution. So it's almost like um, and, and this is almost a dark, like cynical perspective. But uh, if people want to believe that vaccination, that the government's um, injecting microchips into your vaccination to monitor you and, and GPS or, or believe that um, masks are a myth per per perpetrated by the liberal media, like we should let them, even if it's hazardous to their health. So, so do you see that that distinction as, as maybe uh, being difficult to wrap your mind around? <laughs> uh, um it is incredibly hard to wrap your mind around. It's hard to wrap your mind around all of this, just the level of cynicism and misinformation that's pulsating through our society. And look, I've been dodging the question of how much regulation there should be. There is regulation of our public airways of all kinds. Um, I do believe it should be minimal, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't exist. Think about obscenity, right? Um, you know, over time, you probably know that James Joyce's Ulysses was barred from the United States because it was obscene. D.H. Lawrence's uh, Lady Chattery's Lover was barred from the United States, barred by customs officials, by the way, who searched people for it. Um, now, I think most reasonable Americans, I hope today, would think that that's unjust and invidious, which it is. Um, but that's, you know, that, that begs the question of what remains obscene and what remains so horrible that it shouldn't be on the airwaves. And there are such things. I'll give you two examples. One is child pornography and the other is animal torture. Both of those things are still illegal to post on the net. And I think they should be. Why? Because both of them involve crimes, right? Crimes that involve like real material harm to, um, you know, obviously children and animal that are otherwise defenseless. And let me be clear that I support those, those prohibitions, but I, I'm not an expert on obscenity law, but my understanding is those are pretty much the only two things that you can't post on the net because of the very direct material form that they depict. But I don't want a more expansive definition than that because, you know, then we get back to Lady Chatterley. There were plenty of people that thought that this de depiction, even let's face it, celebration of adultery um, would spell the death knell of morality and decency in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and they believe that as strongly as anybody that wants to, you know, take this COVID, this COVID misinformation off the net. You know, allow me to play devil's advocate for a moment. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I think few people would disagree that there needs to be a ban on um, 
child pornography, animal torture. I think, I think there are other things that fit into that category, but um, what about things like Holocaust, uh, ho- excuse me, Holocaust denial? Um, there are people, and, and I think this was, this was something that uh, Facebook wrestled with. Uh, I think it was earlier this year or last year, but there were groups that um, were perpetuating the, um, the idea that the Holocaust was made up and never happened. Right. Yeah. And um, it, it, even though to your point, it, there's no material harm uh, to the degree that there is, you know, for depiction of, of child pornography or, or animal torture. Yes. Um, that is a, a very, very extremely visceral, viscerally painful claim for uh, Jewish people to to have to experience. So I wonder how you would wrestle with that. Well, well, look, I mean, let let's let's also remind ourselves that we're talking about two different things here. You know, we're talking about what Facebook can do, and then we're talking about what the U.S. government can do. Right. Facebook is a private company. And so as a matter of law, if Mark Zuckerberg wants to take down Holocaust denial stuff, he can. All right. Um, But let's also remember that in the countries where Holocaust denial is illegal, like Germany, there's plenty of evidence suggesting that it hasn't worked in the ways that the Germans hoped. In fact, you know, there's some scholars who think that the efforts in Germany to ban things like Nazi regalia, which is illegal in Germany, have actually helped spark the skinhead and neo-Nazi movement, that they've had precisely the opposite effect that was hoped, um, you know, kind of nip this in the bud. Instead, what they've done is they've, they've provided a lightning rod and a rallying cry for these awful neo-Nazi crazies. Um, so, you know, behind all these drives for censorship is a somewhat simplistic model of human behavior, whereby if you restrict the speech, the associated behavior is somehow going to go away. I think the German example shows precisely the opposite. Yeah, I, I, I think there's there's something to that. And, and I'm glad that you distinguish between uh, what Facebook can censor and what the government can censor, because that brings us to the Section 230 debate. Um, and for folks that are unfamiliar with it, maybe you've seen it in the news, Section 230, what's Section 230? Um, can you explain how that um, that controversy and how those two camps uh, um, within the Section 230 debate, how that sort of fits into the, the picture of our conversation? Well, just to be just to be clear, um, I'm not a lawyer. I don't even play one on TV. Um, <laughs> but but in the, the very short um, the very short explanation here is that you know Section 230 um, uh, prevents you or anybody else from suing an organization like Facebook for something that they post. So so it insulates them from liability. And, and, you know, it's now under fire and it's under fire, interestingly, from both sides of the political spectrum. You know, uh, uh, it's under fire from people on the left who feel that Facebook hasn't done a good enough job, uh, you know, monitoring hate speech like Holocaust denial, which is hate speech. Um, and it's under fire from, uh, you know, people on the right who were angry because they think that in the process of doing this monitoring, people like Zuckerberg have just taken down Republican stuff that they don't like. 
Yeah, it is. It is an interesting, um, an interesting conflict. And and uh, folks who listen to the pod know that I'm I'm finishing up my my JD here in DC, so I can add a little bit of color to the conversation here, John. Like th- on the one hand, the proponents of Section 230 say that it encourages innovation on the internet um, and speech, because in a world without Section 230, platforms and Twitter would be constantly censoring everyone and removing content for fear of litigation, or even the platforms might not have even existed in a world without Section 230, because of the founder's fear of litigation, right? Like, why would you start a company knowing that you could get sued to oblivion if if one of your users posts something deleterious? On the other hand, Section 230 critics argue that um, internet companies, as you said, uh, John, should not be receiving blanket immunity, particularly when um, platforms can tag things as unreliable or false. Uh, you know, you mentioned Zuckerberg potentially removing um, conservative, infor- uh, conservative information. And um, obviously this has an influence on content that, that appears on users' nude feeds. So I think it will be interesting to see how um, this, this uh, issue plays itself out. Because as you said, it does seem like there is a little bit more bipartisan support for Section 230 reform. Do you have any prediction on whether or not it will change? And then if it if it does change, what the implications would be for free speech? Yeah, well, look, I'm a historian. I have a hard enough time figuring out the past. So, <laughs> you know, it's pretty, it, it, I, I don't, it's really hard for me to get into the future. I mean, I'll just say that I, I'm, I'm extremely concerned about you know, this, as we're calling it, sort of bipartisan attack. It seems like everyone hates big tech now. Mm -hmm. Um, They become a sort of whipping boy. And I get that because, you know, uh, um, uh, for all the reasons that we've we've been describing and all the misinformation and hate that's pulsating through the public sphere. But on on another level, I just feel that, again, a lot of it is misplaced and it also... Um, kind of lets the rest of us in a weird way off the hook. Like we should pause a moment and just remind ourselves that nobody is ever forced to go onto Facebook. Um, I'm not on Facebook. I don't do social media for a number of reasons, but the biggest one is I just think it wouldn't be good for my head. Um, And I think it would be too distracting for me. Um, But there's no law requiring you to go on Facebook. Um, (laughs) This is all voluntary activity. And I think there's a part of us that understands we're behaving badly on Facebook, which many of us are, and we want to slap the hands of Facebook. Right. How about looking in the mirror? You know, like, like let's leave Mark Zuckerberg out of it for a moment and just say like, dude, what have you done to make this problem either better or worse? It's just, it's such an interesting paradigm shift. You keep, you keep saying it's, it's not the platform. It's, it's the person. I agree with you. I almost wish more people would, um, would adopt that mindset. I think it's easy to go back to something we discussed earlier. It's easy to, to, um, paint these big tech companies and their, uh, you know, mysterious algorithms to paint them as the scapegoats, um, and, you know, oppressing our, our, choices and decisions but ultimately like you said no one's forcing us to to sign up for these for these services and you know you do see some um efforts just just to sort of give them credit some efforts by them to um control information that they know to be erroneous like for example twitter recently i think this was last year has begun including warnings on its tweets you're not on twitter john but my listeners will know um that if you post i think this happens started happening when um 
uh, around the time of the election results were coming in, Trump started uh, posting misinformation about the validity of the results. Twitter had had a, a note that says, um, you know, this tweet contains misleading information or yes. this, this tweet contains disputed or unverified claims. I think this is excellent. I think this is excellent because because it's it's you know, you're you're still you're leaving the the user with the freedom to um click the tweet and, and to access the information, but you are also modulating it and saying, listen, this is unconfirmed. So you read it at your own risk. Do you think this might be something of, of, of a solution? I'm a huge supporter of that. And I should tell you that even though I'm not on Twitter, thanks to the magic of, of the Google, you know, I, I read tweets all the time. Yeah. And you can't be a journalist, which I also am without doing that, because, you know, so many of the great quotable things by Trump and others obviously appear on Twitter. And look, for Twitter to put up a warning sign, that's Twitter's free speech, exactly. right? That's Jack Dorsey saying, OK, look, this guy has a right to free speech, i.e. President Trump, but so do I. And I'm here using my free speech to tell you that what I think Trump said is bullshit. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I think that's a fabulous use of free speech. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And 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 it actually, you know, calls to mind just because we're on this topic. So former President Trump was blocked, as, as you know, as listeners know, by, let's see, Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Amazon, every major platform for his role in encouraging violence, particularly in light of the January 6th events in D.C. So if we can put aside both of our personal feelings about Trump. I think we're on the same page here on that. What do you, what do you make of this precedent? Are we creating a, a precedent that these platforms can block individuals whose content they don't agree with? I think it's an awful precedent. And I say that as somebody that yields to nobody in their loathing for Trump and what he did to this country and also to its public sphere. Mm. Um, I still think it's awful. Um, and I think it's awful for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, I think that one of the historical patterns that we see over and over again in my book and elsewhere is that the best way to give somebody a microphone is to try to silence it. Yeah. It is, again, a childlike fantasy to imagine that by blocking Trump, you're somehow actually going to muzzle Trump. Right. I've heard a lot from them recently. All right. Hasn't worked, you know. <laughs> And if anything, it gives him a wonderful talking point. Look what a martyr I am. Look at how big tech, right, mobilize against me. Um, but no, you know, I emerge victorious and come and march with me against these people that are trying to do me harm. Um, so again, I think it's absurd to imagine censorship works in the way that censors think. In some ways, I wish it would because I despise Trump. Right. But I also know from my reading of history that it won't work. I think there's a second thing, too, especially surrounding the January 6th insurrection. Um, uh, I think that this, this effort to block Trump and Trump's statements around that, I think, um, in many ways, allied, avoid the question of, you know, whether Trump, quote, incited that insurrection with his words. Hmm. And um, let me say again, for purposes of transparency, that I supported the impeachment of Trump both times. Um, but the second time I supported it, not because I believe he incited the riot, because I don't think any of us know that. I supported it because of what he did after it started, which yeah. was nothing. 
And also because what he did in putting pressure on the, the elected officials in Atlanta to reverse the outcomes there. I think both of those actions, in the first case inactions, were fully impeachable. Um, and yet the first article, I would not have voted yes on. The first article claimed that his speech at the Washington Monument, quote, incited the riot. Um, mm. Now, um, look, you're the lawyer, Ricky, and not me. But what the courts have actually said on this subject is that if you want to censor somebody for inciting, you have to show that there was an absolute and immediate connection between what they were saying and what happened. So if Trump had said, instead of, you know, I want you to take back your country, you won't have a country anymore. If he had said not that, but I want you to march to the Capitol, I want you to break the windows, I want you to assault police officers, I want you to defecate in the halls, um, if he had said that, which by the way, he did not, mm -hmm. I think there would be a much better case of incitement. That's not what he said. Um, and for people that think that he should have been impeached for inciting that riot, if they're on the left like me, I would ask them how they will feel or think the next time there's an unarmed black person killed by police on our streets, which there will be, mm -hmm. unfortunately, and then there will be a demonstration and some of it might turn violent, which some of those demonstrations have in the wake of, of police murders. Um, how will they feel if a speaker who said before the riot, the cops are pigs and they're racist? How will they feel when that person is, well, arrested for inciting the burning of a police car? Yeah. I don't think they'll feel very good. Um, I think well, they, they will state, and correctly so, that that person's speech was protected. Um, that person didn't say, hey, there's a police car right in front of me, burn it. Trump didn't say that either. And so we have to be really, really careful here. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, earlier in your response, you said something like, the more we, we silence uh, an expression, the more attention we're bringing to it. I think there's, th th there's truth to that. There's a psychological phenomenon. Um, it's escaping me now, but it's, it's, it, it's exactly that point that when you make an effort to suppress um, or when the media makes effort not to draw attention to something, it, yes. ends, up, it ends up drawing attention to it. I also agree that... Um, it, it becomes an interesting talking point for Trump to 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 sort of, um, you know, validate his arguments about the press trying to silence him. And obviously right now he's starting his own social media platform. But I will say it's interesting. Um, the counter argument, the reason for leaving uh, the Trump, Trump's Twitter and Trump's Facebook is that it's it's a benefit to the world because it promotes dialogue. You know, Twitter allows right now, I, I, this might've been mentioned in your book, I might've read, read it elsewhere, but Twitter allows dictators like Kim Jong-un and Ali Khamenei to use their platform to express whatever ideas they want, irregardless of the their human rights violations, irregardless of their state's um, you know, endorsement of, of uh, just, just despicable policies on, on uh, freedom and liberty. But at the same time, they block Trump um, as a result of this, uh, you know, of the alleged incitement. So it is interesting how, you know, in one instance, it's a benefit to the world to, to promote dialogue. In the other instance, it's too dangerous. What I think, John, and, and I don't know if you agree with me, I think mm -hmm. people were so 
um, there was so much public pressure to give Trump a slap on the wrist, to put him in the penalty box. Um, someone needed to, to pay. Someone needed to be held responsible um, for the insurrection. And I think big tech, and, and you know, this might be a little conspiratorial of me, but I think there was some sort of a meeting or some sort of a, an understanding that, listen, if you guys agree to take this you know, guy off your platform, we'll follow suit. And then you saw, as I mentioned, 10, 15, 20 platforms all did that. And I do think it was because of the, the need to actually um, have some sort of punishment for, for Trump after his, his actions. Right. And, and again, just so none of your listeners are in any way confused by this, um, I believe that Trump displayed despicable, uh, displayed despicable behavior right. at the Washington Monument. I just don't think that behavior was impeachable. I think the behavior that was impeachable was doing nothing to protect the people's house once it was under attack. Mm-hmm. Um, and also all the things he did to try to, you know, put pressure on elected officials, especially in Georgia, to overcome the election. So I'm not here making any brief for Trump. Right. Trump's behavior on January 6th or before or after. Um, I just think that, you know, we, we need to pause at moments like this and we need to ask how the claims we're making will be applied in the present or in the future mm-hmm. and how, more to my point, they'll come back to boomerang against us, whoever we are. The other childlike fantasy that always attaches to censorship is that people don't think it will censor them. It's always a bad guy, right? Exactly. It's that guy over there, whoever that guy is, right? He's going to get censored without imagining that once you start going down that road, eventually it will lead to your doorstep. It does, it does. And so a lot of listeners might not imagine that, you know, um, uh, assuming Trump incited that riot will one day be used against them. It will be, it absolutely will be because you'll say something that somebody else will claim was so awful and so, obviously attached to a certain kind of violent or negative behavior, you'll go down. You will go down. Not just, not just the other guy, you. Yeah. And, and with respect to the legal perspective, one of the other issues you run into with, with uh, speech expression is the subjective versus objective manifestation of intent. So Trump, a lot of times claims that he's joking or actually he doesn't, but his, his, yeah. his capos will say, I remember when he made that claim about injecting um uh cleaning uh, the cleaning, yeah, cleaning fluid yeah, in, detergent. In, into yeah. his his art he's like you know it's it, 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 whatever and i think kellyanne conway or someone uh after that was like oh you know he he doesn't mean those things literally he's being ironic he's being sarcastic and it's very difficult to glean what intent was because i mean you know we can look at from the objective reasonable person standard and say it it seems like he was serious, right? Based on his body language, based on his his uh, right. past pattern of, of these statements. But at the end of the day, we don't know what he meant. So I think that adds further credence to your, um, you know, to your belief that if you if that ends up applying to you, if you end up posting something um, ironically or sarcastically, or your intent was not to be taken seriously, and then you're blocked from a, a platform right. or, or you're silenced, you know, you, you'll probably have a different explanation for it. So it is helpful to think about as much as we do want to punish, um, you know, individuals like, like, like former president Trump that uh, had a role in these horrific events. We also have to be mindful of the precedent that we're establishing. So, so I think that's an important right. takeaway. Take and, and look, I'm glad you mentioned the detergent thing, because to me, that's another example of how sometimes we talk about free speech too much And I say that somewhat sheepishly because, you know, obviously I write about it and in a way I'm guilty of that. But 
my point here is that I think sometimes we don't help matters by framing things as free speech issues when they're really not, in my view. So did Donald Trump have the right to make this ridiculous remark about detergent? Yeah, I do think he did, whatever his intent was, right? But what sort of president makes a joke, if that's what it was, about injecting detergent when he knows that some people are actually doing that? What sort of human being does that? That should be the question, right? Not whether Trump had the right to make a joke about this. I think he did, but who cares, right? Here the question should be, what kind of leader would ever make that joke? That's not a free speech question to me. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. I, I think that there's I think there's also the consideration of as as much as it's binary, it's like what what does the law permit and what doesn't the law permit? It, there's also a spectrum in terms of uh you know like whether or not someone should do something or yes. or or how you know even if as you as you mentioned even if something's technically allowed right like i can tweet you know about any public official any celebrity no consequence doesn't mean i should um and i think it's important to note that uh free speech does come with responsibility in addition to to just us having that privilege and 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 i think that we have to ask ourselves what sort of um what sort of public sphere we want to have and how we can make it a more decent and a civil one. And again, to me, that's not a free speech question, right? So this was the, this was the line that I gave to lots of teachers after Trump was elected. I said that I think our goal in our K through 12 classrooms should be to create places where anyone can like Trump and like his policies, but nobody can act like Trump. Mm-hmm. Not insofar as, you know, he calls Mexicans rapists and women's pigs and uh, makes jokes about people injecting detergent. So you can like him and you can like his policies, but you can't act like him. Not in my classroom, not under my watch, because I think that for us to have or make a more decent and fair and civil public sphere, we do need to abide by some rules, not state driven rules. I'm talking about rules that you and I create for how we want to interact. And our school could be teaching those. And the real challenge during the Trump years was teaching those rules, again, not laws, but informal rules of civility and dialogue that the president of the United States was violating three times a day. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's that's where the ethics the, the ethics uh, component comes into it as well. I mean, we could do a whole other episode on that, but um, his violations and, and his um, you know, cronies violations of the Hatch Act and, um, you know, all, all the ways that even though he didn't technically, um, you know, violate any, any criminal statute, uh, there were still enormous ethical complications um, there as well. So, John, you know, if, if, if we've, we've discussed a lot of um, different components and facets of, of the free speech landscape today. If, you, if there's one thing that you want listeners to take away from our conversation, what would that be? Uh, I would say that The major thing would be, going back to the very beginning of our discussions, don't accept the kind of trendy line that you hear on campuses right now, that free speech is a kind of weapon of the right. Um, Free speech doesn't have a party, or it shouldn't. Um, Free speech is what we use to try to make our country different. Um, Without it, you can't make anything better. So if you fashion yourself as an advocate for social justice, please, please embrace free speech. 
Because if you start to try to restrict it, eventually it will be weaponized against the very kinds of social justice campaigns that you support. I couldn't agree. Couldn't agree more with that. To everyone listening, you can purchase John's book, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn, on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. I'm sure listeners want to know where they can go to follow you and to learn more about your work in general. Uh, well, they can just go to the University of Pennsylvania page and uh, just me at University of Pennsylvania, and you'll you'll see me there. Awesome, yeah. Dr. John Zimmerman. Thank you so much again for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Ricky. It was fun. There you have it, guys. That was my conversation with Dr. John Zimmerman. Um, there are a couple of really important takeaways from our conversation that I wanted to leave you with. Uh, the first being that I do think that compared to the rest of the world, we take free speech in America for granted. Um, you know, citizens in countries like uh, I mentioned this, you know, in our conversation, but North Korea and Burma, Turkmenistan, Equatorial Guinea, Libya, Cuba, Uzbekistan, Syria, Belarus, in all of these countries. Citizens are virtually isolated by authoritarian rulers who see access to information as a threat to their rule. And so not only is there no freedom of the press, that the media is silenced, but you know, citizens in general are highly censored. There's restrictive laws and fear and intimidation used to prevent the spread of information. For example, in some of these countries, you would face significant penalties for criticizing their heads of state, whether that be uh, making a, a verbal comment to a friend or posting something um, on an online forum. So to give you a flavor for it, um, if you were to actually criticize the government in one of these countries, here are some of the consequences. So in Azerbaijan, you'd be facing up to two years of corrective labor. In Lebanon, up to $66,400 in fines. In Venezuela, up to 40 months in prison. So that's over three years. In Poland, up to three years in prison. In Turkey, up to four years in prison. In the Netherlands, up to five years in prison. In Cameroon, $42,260 in fines. In Bahrain, up to seven years in prison. In Kuwait, permanent exile. In Thailand, up to 15 years in prison. In Iran, 74 lashes. What is that? Let me see what that what, what that's referring to. Um, yeah, the Iranian penal code calls for 74 lashes for publishing falsehoods and insulting agents carrying their duties. Um, that's it's astonishing. I was not uh, not aware that that was that was still a practice in the Iranian regime. And then in Indonesia, up to five years in prison. So contrast that with America, you guys. That like in America, if you make a TikTok video impersonating. Uh, Trump or, or President Biden, you get a million likes, an endorsement deal, and get to live like, you know, you don't have to work another day in your life. You'll be an influencer for good. So it is, you know, it does bear in mind, and this is something that John really harped on, like, you know, free, free speech isn't, it's not something that we should associate as a weapon of the right or really a partisan instrument. It's something that, that sets America apart from, from these, these regimes. Um, I also wanted to mention you know the the question of who bears responsibility in um, in the context of uh, publishing speech online and in terms of the section 230 debate I don't necessarily know if the solution is eradicating section 230 and making it so that Twitter and Facebook are always exposed um, for litigation because the reality is if in a world without section 230 you know, Twitter and Facebook would have to highly censor its users' posts and tweets in order to, to ensure that they're not at risk 
of being sued for for defamation or for obscenity, right? Like think about you know right now if you know if you post something uh, potentially suspect, you might get a warning, you might get a suspension in your account, um, but you know you wouldn't necessarily be censored uh, in this world without Section two thirty. Facebook and Twitter would employ either powerful um, AI functionality to to regulate and monitor tweets, or they would actually have people reviewing every single tweet and post to ensure that doesn't put them rest for liability. So, like you know, all of a sudden, if you you post something uh, critical of the state, it's looking a little bit like some of these other countries in in Venezuela, Lebanon, and Azerbaijan, where you know. There might be consequences, maybe not legally, but you would certainly be censored um, and you'd have less freedom online. So I don't know if the solution is to eradicate Section 230. I also don't know if the solution is to keep it the same because we do have a problem where these platforms do get to receive protections of um, publishers while sort of acting like information content providers. You know, we mentioned in the episode Twitter um, flagging things as misleading or um, – you know, noting that facts are disputed, uh, that as much as I agree, and, and John noted that this is an extremely useful tool for them to prevent misinformation, that could be looked at as, as them actually um, affecting the content of the speech. So why should they get protections of uh, publishers and information content providers? So there are a number of, of amendments that I should, I, I should mention to all you guys um, on suggestions for how Section 230 might be modified. So the first is the PACT Act, which was introduced last June by Senators Brian Schatz and John Thune. And this idea is to reduce the scope of the protections offered to platforms by the law or require platforms to change their behavior to keep those protections. So instead of um, you know eliminating Section 230 and exposing them to more litigation, the thinking goes you encourage them to protect consumers from potentially harmful or discriminatory content and actually require that they take steps in order to, to earn those protections. Um, of course, the challenge here is, is to do so while striking a balance that doesn't encourage over-moderation of marginalized communities. So that's the first proposed amendment. The second approach, which includes the Online Freedom and Viewpoint Diversity Act, um, would restrict moderation and fact-checking to promote a freer flow of ideas. So the idea here is that there would be almost no censorship and there would be almost no regulation of, of messaging. But I guess the issue there is then you have the, the fake news problem that we talked about. If, if um, these platforms aren't able to prevent people from posting about Holocaust denial or, you know, misinformation about vaccination or or, or um, distortion of, of facts about COVID, like then all of a sudden people are at risk. So I, I don't necessarily know if that's the best idea. And then the third proposal, which includes uh, the bill proposed by Senator Lindsey Graham, would just eviscerate Section 230. Um, and I, yeah, I, I don't know if, I don't know if that's, if that's the answer either. The reality is there's no easy answers here. And I did appreciate um, John's uh, characterization of the issue as, hey, you know, it's easy to uh, paint big tech as the scapegoat here, but we bear responsibility as well um, as, you know, voluntary users of these platforms, right? Like no one's holding a gun to your head and saying you have to sign up for these services. And, you know, we're responsible for educating ourselves. And, and all, I think all that is true. But at the same time, these platforms do bear enormous responsibility and should bear enormous responsibility for the conduct of their users. I remember in um, I took a class uh, in law school 
where we learned about a case, Doe v. MySpace, where there was a plaintiff, Doe, so so the name wasn't released to the public, uh, who signed up for MySpace when she was 13. Uh, and she alleged that she was 18 because you needed to actually do so in order to uh, be eligible to use MySpace at the time. She started talking to the defendant, who was 19 years old at the time, and the two met up for a date. He ended up sexually assaulting her. And Doe um, sued MySpace because he be- uh, because she believed that MySpace enabled this assault uh, by its negligence and its failure its failure to warn, right? right? She believed that they had a, a duty to warn her about these risks. The court ended up finding that for the defendant and um, noting that Section 230 immunity covered any duty to warn and that MySpace was protected. You know, and you see, I mean, there's so many cases where, where this is where this is true. I mean, you also saw this, you also see it in the case of uh, Backpage.com, which is a site um, ostensibly for classifieds, but it's well known for adult services ads. And um, among them are, are sex ads featuring children forced into prostitution. Um, and victims and families for years would bring cases against Backpage, um, and they lost because the judges were convinced that Backpage was shielded from liability um, for the post of its users by Section 230. You know, and you also think about the atrocities that people commit um, and then live stream on platforms, right? Like there was the, the massacre of 51 people at mosques in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, or the suicide of a 12-year-old girl in the state of Georgia. Um, you know, Facebook doesn't necessarily... Uh, actively disseminate this content but they're sort of vicariously responsible you know for providing the the mechanism for people to to post um you know to post this information uh and we just i guess we have to wonder you know where where do we draw the line in in protecting social medias from having to take responsibility for really the horrors that they're hosting on their platforms and i do think that no matter what happens, I do think that the landscape is, is at a tipping point and we're going to see change. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but we are going to see change in this respect in the, uh, in the coming years, um, especially as more and more people rely on these platforms for, for their information. But I guess the last thing to mention about my, my conversation with John is there – I think there is a – and I alluded to this a minute ago, but there, I think there is a gullibility problem in in our country. As much as you know, we want to talk about um, the legal ramifications and the necessity for regulation, people believe some kind of outlandish things. Um, I was looking into like kind of crazy conspiracy theories. Um, there are people for years who have argued that NASA staged the moon landing and that the secret has been protected by the CIA ever since. There's Americans who believe that the government killed uh, JFK, that COVID-19 was a hoax engineered by the media and global elite to control the population. Um, there's actually people, I mean, it, some, some, I mean, some of these gets crazier and crazier. Some people, um, the European Organization for Nuclear Research they believe that when their organization discovered the Higgs boson in 2012, they inadvertently created a black hole and Earth was sucked into it. Um, they believe that the world ended in 2012, but we haven't realized it yet. 
Nobody tell Christopher Nolan because I think that's the plot of, of his next movie. Uh, they believe – I'm going to keep sharing these because some of these are really funny. Disney created Frozen as a distraction. Walt Disney used cryogenic technologies to freeze himself when he died. Um, therefore, he created Frozen as a way to hack Google search algorithm and distract consumers from information about the late Walt Disney's possible Frozen procedure. The Denver International Airport is Illuminati's headquarters. Um, okay. Interesting. The Earth is hollow. There's an. Some people believe there's an Earth inside of Earth, and there's a YouTube link to that. Okay. Um, the world is flat. So the flat. I mean, I, I should have mentioned this to John because I think this would have been an interesting uh, case study. Like we talked about, we talked about QAnon and, and some of their beliefs. It would have been interesting the flat Earth society because there's still a good amount of people that subscribe to the idea that. Rather than a rotating orb, the world the world is flat and stationary. It would be interesting at some point to to uh, you know bring some of these individuals onto the podcast to talk, to talk about their beliefs. Uh, but that one that one's okay. That one I think is is one of the more easily disputed conspiracies. Uh, Prince Charles is a vampire. Um, okay, uh, Bigfoot is real. The Nazis had a secret base in Antarctica. Some of these you're probably familiar with. We're all living in the Matrix. Okay, so that that's not a conspiracy. I think that's true. And we've <laughs> and if you listen to the um to the pod, if you listen to the simulation episode, uh, I can go into that more. But I'm pretty convinced that we're all living in a simulation. So that's the only one I agree with. The moon isn't real. The moon doesn't exist. It's simply projection. Okay. Titanic didn't actually sink. Apollo 17 wasn't the last moon mission. Zombies can rise from the dead. Bill Gates is making fake snow that burns instead of melts. These are these are getting like more more ludicrous. Uh, Amelia Earhart was eaten by crabs. The Loch Ness monster lives in Scotland. Five G causes cancer and COVID nineteen. Um, a solar flare caused the Titanic to sink. The Black Knight satellite is an alien spacecraft. Sirens were responsible for shipwrecks. The original conspiracy theory: sailors have claimed that mystical women dubbed sirens would lure them to the rocks and cause shipwrecks back in the day. Planet X is home to a world called Nirubu. Queen Elizabeth I was a man. COVID vaccine has a 5G chip inside of it. Yeah, we alluded to this. Um, people believe that the vaccine contains a microscopic 5G uh, chip, and that when you when you consent to getting the the vaccine. Um, you're allowing the government to implant a microchip into you. It's actually, I mean, this one's pretty in intense. If you go to the Popular Mechanics website, there's a whole diagram about, uh, actually, I take it back. It, I thought it was a diagram of the 5G chip. It looks like a, it's a diagram of a guitar pedal, <laughs> so that's kind of funny. Um, airplane exhaust trials are filled with chemicals. The abominable snowman lives in Asia, and internet uh, routers can lead to, to harmful 5G radiation. So all this, I guess, is just to say that um, people have the right to believe whatever they want, and they also have the right to share that information. Um, like, for example, I wonder how many people are in the Flat Earth Society. I'm going to say 5,000. Flat Earth Society members worldwide. According to Wikipedia, 500 people became new have become members in 2017, so that's interesting. A lot of these people might not actually believe this. They might just be looking for, like, attention or whatever. Um... It's actually funny. If you search the flat earth theory online, one of the first articles by Life Science is, are flat earthers being serious? Members of the flat earth society claim to believe the earth is flat. Are they kidding? Which 
it's kind of funny. It, it's reminiscent of um, Trump and the the injecting the, the the cleaning fluid. It's like, oh, he wasn't being serious about that. He was just joking. I mean, maybe it's possible that um, you know that people are being sarcastic and they don't actually believe this. I just wonder how they respond to um, to satellite images and uh, video that's taken from from above the earth. How they, yeah. Um, I mean, we could do a whole episode just on conspiracy theories on, and I studied this a little bit in, in undergrad and, and I took a, a social science class, um, on the mind and the law in school, but, uh, sort of like the psychology between why people believe in conspiracy theories. Like I said, like, this is like a whole episode, but like just the notion that conspiracy theories provide people with simplified answers, um, and it helped people make sense of the world. Uh, and helps them predict and anticipate the future. Um, it's it's sort of it's unique. It's sort of inevitable as a part of human nature. But I do I do think at the same time, it's you know been made more possible in the digital age because people are able to to share their conspiracy theories more. You know, and and um, I guess I guess it also provides them a sense of order and understanding. Um, but at the same time, like. I think some conspiracy theories are more plausible than others. Like in the case of QAnon, um, if you have, if you're not really super familiar with QAnon, it's the belief that, and and there are serious people that believe this. The world is run by a cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles that believe that, in addition to molesting children, um, members of this group kill and eat their victims to extract a life-extending chemical called adenochrome. And and I think members of this group include Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, and George Soros. So and they also, by the way, were were QAnon followers were participating in the January twenty twenty one insurrection. Um, so you know, I guess it offers a convenient explanation for things that feel inexplicable or wrong about the world, um, and offers like a fantastical world of secret wars and cabals, but. I don't think any reasonable person would actually believe this. So anyway, I'm getting way off track. Um, (laughs) Just just delving, uh, you know, hope you guys indulge some of that. Just delving into the world of of conspiracy theories for a moment. But all that's to say, like, I think that free, I think that speech in America is obviously uh, a a double-sided coin. Um, It's it's certainly a blessing, but at the same time, it's it's also very much a curse. And and I think that. to sum up the conversation with John, like we bear a lot of responsibility to ensure um, that we're issuing only responsible speech, not just you know saying things because we have the right to say them. So, really enjoyed my conversation with John, and I hope all of you will check out his book, uh, Free Speech, and why you should give a damn. So next few weeks, I'm really excited about. First, I have a bonus episode coming up. Uh, I have not done one of those in a while, so if you're a new listener to the pod, uh, I think you'll really enjoy uh, sort of the change of pace on on those episodes, which are uncensored, unfiltered, um, totally improvised. And then after that, I'll be joined by orthopedic surgeon Dr. David Hanscom to talk about the dangers of sitting, the importance of posture, as well as why people with chronic pain should try going pain-free without medication and surgery. So those are coming up next on Nervous Habits. 
Thanks so much for joining me. This has been another episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow the pod on social media, on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast, on Twitter at Nervous Habits underscore. Search for full episodes and clips on YouTube by searching Nervous Habits Podcast and write to the pod at Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com. And remember, next time you see an implausible or suspect claim on Twitter, think for a second before you retweet. Take care and stay nervous.